This podcast is sponsored by Agape Match. Agape Match is a boutique matchmaking service that caters to exceptional singles. To learn more about how I can help you, go to agapematch.com. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week I bring a guest on to talk about dating and relationships while answering your questions. You can ask a question by visiting askamatchmaker.com. In this week's episode, I'm speaking to author Floor Edwards and her twin sister, Tamar Edwards. By age 12, Flor and Tamar had lived in 24 different locations across three continents, always on the move to escape the Antichrist and in preparation for the apocalypse in 1993, their nomadic childhood prompted Flor to pen her memoir, Apocalypse Child, A Life in End Times. Flor movingly describes her early life growing up with her family and 11 siblings as the member of the Children of God, a controversial religious movement that many describe as a apocalyptic cult. Tamar, her sister, works in health and wellness and is currently in the process of receiving her certification as a sex and intimacy coach. Ladies, welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. Thanks for having us. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, I briefly spoke to Floor about coming to this podcast and I loved Floor's kind of reaction, like ask a matchmaker, am I answering dating and relationship questions? And I was like, no, 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 no. I just want to hear your story and specifically what it comes to dating and relationships and sex in the children of God and having left that, how has that affected you? So this is, this is kind of how we are here today. Where do we begin? So yeah, we grew up in probably one of the more controversial um, cults. Some people call it a new religious movement. And there were some very radical sexual beliefs that the leader had. And I always think it's important for people to understand where these beliefs were coming from. It came a little bit from his background. He was a preacher's son and he wanted to, you know, do the Lord's work. He was very interested in, you know, kind of following in his mother's footsteps. But he also had this conflict with his his own sexual desire, you know, as you know, most men have. Um, what year are we talking about? This was the 1960s. Okay. And 1960s. you ladies, when were, you know, you are one of 11 siblings? Two or of 12. Siblings. 12. We're two, two of 12. 12. Yes. That's right. Yes. And when, what year were you born? 1981. Are you the of the first siblings or the latter siblings? <laughs> I'm number or three and, and I'm number four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. All right. So I just want to get some context there. So yeah. this movement is created in mm-hmm. the 60s. Mm-hmm. So Father David found like the hippie movement to be this very like fertile ground for, for his beliefs. And his beliefs involved sort of this new church paradigm. He kind of thought, you know, the church doesn't need to be so conservative when it comes to sex. And so he just kind of created this like this belief system um, that did stir up a lot of controversy. Wait, as, as so this was like foundational, like the sex part. It was part of a belief system. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to wrap my so, head around this for a second. Yeah, no, it is, it is a lot. And, so much and, um, of religion is not, uh, that's usually not even talked about. Well, that's why he wanted to do it. Cause he, he wanted to create a new sort of paradigm. He thought, you know, right. why is there this, you know, separation between God and the body basically, you know, and like, mm. why is there all the sin and guilt, you know, associated with the body and why can't people, you know, celebrate, uh, their beliefs and their religion and also 
indulge in the pleasures of the flesh, basically. And he did take it, take it rather far, as, as you've read. But that's sort of how it started. I always like to tell, tell people there, there were three main beliefs of his group. The three main beliefs was that sex was sort of an act of God's love. The second one was that the world was ending. And the third one was that the Western nations were, were evil, specifically America. So he, he had us all move out. That's why we grew up in Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia. So mm-hmm. your, your parents in the book, your father is from my father's America. Actually, my father's from South Pasadena, yes. Um, he comes from a large Irish Catholic family. My mom is Swedish. And they both met within the group. Um, they met, I think, in Spain, actually, because it was a very global movement. They were all over the world in all different countries, which is why we were constantly moving. How um, many people are we talking about? At the, at the max, I believe it was around 12,000. So not that big, but, but not that small either. They're very, very active, um, as most apocalyptic movement, movements are, because they, do, they, they have this belief in the end that's coming. So it's sort of like kind of all bets are off. We've got work to do before the end time, which was in 1993. So from the 60s, 1993 was determined as the end of times? 1993 was the date. Yes, yes. That was probably established in the early 80s, not as early as the 60s. Were you part of this movement? What is the right way to say this? I want to be accurate. Do I say part of this cult or part of this movement? Like I don't want to be offensive. I call it the children of God. They they went through some stages of their names, but the children of God, I think people comprehend it that's where they got a lot of their mm-hmm. media attention when we were around they actually called themselves the family like that was their name and when we were growing up like as children we we were taught that we were missionaries that's what we believed growing up you know that's what they told us to say um so we didn't know that it was a call it took some years you know and as i talk about in the book i find out through a magazine quiz that i had grown up in a cult we were specifically trained to answer questions if someone asked us if, if we were in a cult or a sect we didn't know we were in a cult. We were the chosen ones. We were right. the chosen children. We were going to be the end time warriors. Um, yeah, they made us feel very special, but with an underlying fear. Right. So I have two questions now from everything you just said. The first question is, when 1993 rolled around, <laughs> were you disappointed or were you relieved? Well, there was a buildup that needed to happen. It was a Bible-based group also sometimes people don't when you hear about everything you you forget like this they were very very much based on the bible and so there were this sequence of events as predicted in the book of revelation that was supposed to happen these events weren't happening so there was like this seven year plan so 93 was the date but seven years before it was kind of like okay when you know, it's, it's this whole sequence of events as told in, I, I, I don't know. They kept often. pushing it forward too. They kept yeah. pushing it. It was 92, it, 91, 92, 93. It kept changing. Yeah. So as 93 uh, approached, it wasn't like, it wasn't such a shock. It was kind of just like, okay, yeah, just push it, push it back. It's going to be, it's going to be soon. It's going to be soon. But yeah, I always say it was anticlimactic. It wasn't nearly as exciting as it sounds. We weren't all hunkered down in a bunker waiting for the end time. And then it didn't happen. It was just like, we just kept on living our lives. My second question is, what did the quiz ask you that that's how you figured you were in a cult? I have them all here, actually. Okay, so there were five questions. So basically, I, you know, I, I well, we weren't allowed to read or write or talk to anyone or listen to music um, within the group. And um, when we came out, one of the first things I started to do is read magazines. I really enjoyed going to the library and like flipping through these glossy magazines because, you know, we hadn't seen any of that. 
Um, so I picked up an issue of, I believe it was Seventeen magazine, and um, there was a story about a young girl who had escaped or had left or had somehow come out of a cult. And then in, in like the sidebar, it said, did you grow up in a cult? Take this quiz and find out now. I was 15 years old and I could not get to that quiz fast enough. Like something clicked in my psyche, like, okay, this, this, something happened that I don't know yet and I need to find this out. So I went very quickly to this, this quiz and these were the, the five questions. And they're not what you may expect, but if you think about and you understand what a cult is, it, it all makes sense. So the first question was, did you grow up in a secluded environment? Were you under the influence of a charismatic leader? Were you coerced to recruit members to your group? Were you prohibited from leaving the premises unless you were recruiting members? And were you taught that the world outside was a forbidden place and did you feel guilty for wanting to leave? So those were the five questions and I answered yes to every single one. It said, if you answered yes to two or three, you may have grown up in a cult. It was like the light bulb went on and I was just like, okay, now right. I know what happened. And I went and told my sisters, it was, you know, it was sort of the moment that we could slowly begin to reconcile. I always say, cause now I had the language to understand what had happened. I had the word cult. So the magazine said, if you answered yes to how many, three? At least three of the last five questions. <laughs> and I answered yes to all five. So Flora, you have this information. You're 15 years old. Do you go to Tamar? I mean, you're twins. I'm going to believe you guys are twin flames too. Oh yeah. I went straight to her and our older sister, Marianne. We were all very close. And I don't know if you remember that, Tamar. Do you remember I that? do remember. It was a Seventeen magazine. Yeah. Um, we were just exposed to the media too. So we were into magazines, you know, looking yeah. at celebrities and whatever. Supermodel. So <laughs> yeah. So I, I, and I actually remember reading it too. It was like a magazine that was there. And it just, it just I mean, it took us- a while. I feel like it was a, it was a gradual unfolding to realize because as a kid you're just given imprints especially as a young child you don't really know you don't have the 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 psychology to understand yeah what's happening right so even to this day people are like how was that growing up in a cult or growing up like you did I'm like I don't know otherwise how was it growing up in one you know home with a the same place your whole life to me that feels different Uh, exotic yeah so had you had boyfriends by then no. Uh, no, I was 15. I did. We didn't experience any like sexual abuse in the in the cults, um, even though they're they have a reputation for that. There was stuff that went on, but in the early days, there was some very free. Like the flirty fishing was before we were born. What is flirty fishing? Oh, flirty fishing. Tamar, do you want to talk about flirty fishing? Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm just gonna really casually talk because I haven't done the study that Floor has done, but. Flirty fishing was a practice, um, also known as being hookers for Jesus, where because God was love and love was sex, um, it was a way to show God to men and to also two things, well, three things, to, to share God's love and to recruit members and to also get donations. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a practice the woman did where they would go out to nightclubs or you know, different places and essentially be hookers for Jesus. You know, you guys are born in 81. This is at the cusp of the AIDS, you know, acknowledging AIDS or the movement, let's say, but did you, did you see firsthand flirty fishing or is this a passed down story to you? Oh, it was a passed down story to us. So we knew about it. By then it had stopped. They probably stopped it like literally like when we were born because 80, like 81 was like, wasn't that the year? They discovered AIDS, right? Somewhere there, yeah. Somewhere there. It was, it was in the early 80s. There's definitely so. recognition in 84. 
Yeah, a lot um, shifted around the time we were born. And um, also the group started to get some persecution or uh, bad publicity, bad publicity, which made them really rethink some of their policies. So we were kind of saved by yeah. grace in a way. But there was a sexual undertone that was there. And it was, you know, again, as a kid, you don't really know. But as you unravel as an adult, and especially with a lot of the study that I've been doing, it creates a deep imprint for sure. Tell me more about the study. You know, me and Flora kind of taking different paths. For me, I've gone into a path of healing, yoga, meditation. I've done sound healing. Um, and more recently, I've really have d- dive into sex and intimacy. I am fascinated with that subject. Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially because the way we were raised, mm-hmm. it felt like almost an initiation. It's the one area in my life where I get the most potent lessons like going through a breakup, for example, or having challenges in relationship, they rock me in a way that I can't learn in school. So I'm like, there's something here that's really powerful. So yeah, I've been studying and um, excited to help people in that realm. When it comes to sex, like how were you introduced to it? Like through your parents, through other members? How many, I mean, you say you lived internationally, you lived in Southeast Asia. So what does that look like? For us, it was in our faces. I mean, not like literally all the time, but like from a young age, like even though I, we didn't experience it, like we lived in close quarters with a lot of people. There was like- We saw sex a lot. We saw (laughs) sex a lot. It was like kind of like (laughs) a live porno show. I remember my first memory, like my very first memory was seeing, was like, I can think it also was just kind of like, wow, because sex is very primal. So I remember some of my very first memories. um, And I, me personally, because we have our different uh, ways we process it. For me, I was incredibly turned on as a little child and also repulsed. And this has, interesting, this is, this has been my theme in my adult life, being super kind of sex obsessed. I'm body obsessed. Like this is what I do, but also feeling like there's such a trauma and there's such a a conflict there Mm. because there was this, there there was the physical abuse as far as punishment that was going on. Um, So you have this love focus and the sexual freedom that's the adults are doing, but the kids are having punishment and abuse. Mm -hmm. So again, that imprint is created at a young age. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all the stuff I'm studying right now. It's about how our childhood affects adult relationships. Like that's our first- Of course thing. it does. I mean, um, you don't have to experience a cult. There are people- <laughs> Yeah. There are people that don't grow up in cults who so much of attachment theory in general yeah. is based on, you know, your parents and what they did Absolutely. the first couple of years of your life. And for you to tell me that your first memory is watching a primal- behavior which is sex i can't imagine and so your coping is in this what is it almost physiological way like you're very mindful about it yeah um floor how about you how how do you cope with this is this also your first memory no well now that she's saying that i am having a memory but like i have done a fair bit of research and just even kind of memory digging on my own to write the book and I think I may even talk a little bit about this in the book, but my main concern was this, the world ending. So like, it didn't matter so much that people were having sex. I was like, you guys, we're going to all be martyrs for God in a couple of years. Like, and that's affected me in, in my adult life. We may go more into this later, but in relationships, I have a hard time comprehending too far into the future. Mm. Um, I just started dating a guy and I might, when we were sort of talking, I was kind of like, just be patient with me. Like, it's hard for me to do the really serious talk because- as a child, the, the future was terrifying for me. 
Um, so I think for me, I didn't have as much trauma. I remember having moments where, yeah, we would see stuff and it wasn't like, I don't, I, I don't know if I have the same response as Tamar had. I think my overarching concern was like, you guys, death. Death to me was kind of more my, my focus. And it, so, I think that's affected so, me because I'm a writer, you know, like writers tend to have this kind of like relationship, close relationship to, to death. And I've, it kind of guides you, you know, even just like putting the book out. It's like, this is, I leave this behind when I die. You know what I mean? Mm. Again, wow. it comes down to, we all have different ways of perceiving things. And even though we're identical twins. Well, your we temperament's just, different. That's personality, yeah. right? Personality yeah. is made up of two parts. Yeah. The first part is your culture and experiences, which you clearly have the same. Uh-huh. But the second part is your temperament and that, that's your internal chemistry. Yeah. So it seems like Tamar has a lot more dopamine <laughs> how she processes things. <laughs> And Floor, it sounds like you have a little bit more serotonin. It seems like you're trying to create community. And even if it's within yourself with that book, I mean, you know, the one thing that stands out for me upon talking to you, and I would have done this with any client that ever came to my office, whenever I hear someone say, you know, I'm the third and fourth oldest of, you know, 12 kids, I think to myself, wow, that must have been tough having to raise children. Oh yeah. We raised, we we raised the children. (laughs) About half my family has read my book, um, and I think it gave them an understanding of it. I know a lot of my brothers, like especially my younger brothers, they don't remember it. Um, so in that sense, you know, I, I was happy that it gave them sort of an understanding of, of their own family, like history, if that's what you want to call it. But I, yeah, I was actually talking to the guy I'm seeing, and I was like, yeah, I, I get along with around half my siblings. Like, I just, it's a lot of people. I mean, do you know 12 immediate people that you have close relationships with? It's a lot of people. <laughs> It and is. we've all taken our paths. And I always say, I don't like to get too much into my current family because it's everyone's own story to tell, but some have done well and some have, you know, done not so well. Do you so, feel lucky that you are twins? Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, I will say that I definitely was more boy crazy. No, yeah, so we, were. <laughs> I was like, no. Floor, floor definitely. Um, I had a version. She, she had more fear. I yeah. was more escape. So I definitely have the addict in me, which I've again worked with. It's my alchemy is like, okay, where does this come from? But being twins, Floor kept me from maybe doing some compulsive behavior. So I was more, I was the kind of person who wanted to, I would have had sex with, you know, multiple people or whatever, but Floor kind of kept me from, and so there's something about that that felt safe for me, uh-huh. but also it kept me from certain experiences but yeah, we were kind of married until yeah. our early 20s. So, yeah, it's funny that she, she's saying that. For me, also watching her experiences, I did have sort of this aversion in general, and I don't know exactly where that was from. It could have just been from the open you know, environment. But yeah, for me, I kind of closed off. It was, again, that fear. I retreated and re- uh, contracted, and Tamar kind of more went out. Like She had to go and explore this, and I kind of curled up in a ball and was like, I don't even want any part of this. But I would watch her sometimes either, you know, get into a relationship or be into a guy and I would see the pain it caused her. And that actually kept me from exploring relationships. For Remember that? I was always like, yeah, every time that, she would tell me, I was like, no. Right. And that's that piece where it's been a lot of learning. Like there, yeah. there's pain there, but that pain is also can be traced back to when, when I was a little girl and I felt abandoned, I felt not safe. It yeah. was not a grounding experience. I was seeing all this stuff that comes up in relationship. Yeah. So the pattern for me has always been chasing unavailable men. Mm-hmm. Mm. I finally have stopped. 
But mm -hmm. as far as attachment theory, I'm definitely a wave. I sometimes call myself a tsunami. <laughs> or in the in the course I'm taking the 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 um anxious they call a wave like they're very tumultuous mm -hmm. and the avoidant is the island. I'm I think the avoidant. Floor's more island, um, but I'm definitely a wave, a, a anxious. I always tell people I'm a twin. I I was in the womb, which is a huge imprint. I was formed with somebody, so I'm very yeah. comfortable being with somebody. So yeah, I chased the unavailable man. I always got hurt. I always felt not good enough, which is what we were told constantly as children. But yeah, when you learn about how this is something that is being replayed, it gives some compassion. Like, okay, that's not my fault, but that's the way I've been in relationship. I can see that you're both a little hard on yourselves. And I just want to say that. <laughs> we are. Yes. You know, as someone who coaches hundreds of women a year, who also might have really difficult situations with their parents or siblings or even their first relationships that have completely influenced how they date as adults. Uh, you know, when people are raised in unstable environments, mm -hmm. right? I'm going to say things just extremely basic. Pretend you're a child right now, you're eight years old and you're watching your parents fight. What most, I think, eight-year-olds, when they watch their parents fight, they usually kind of freeze up. Maybe they'll hide under the table or they'll go into their room and just like listen by the door. You process that in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that imprints a little bit uh, into your emotional range. And so what happens is an, as an adult, when you meet someone who starts to mimic the fight that you saw as a child, you can logically say, okay, this is bad for me. But emotionally, there is a nostalgia mm -hmm. of this kind yeah. of chaos that's happening. Yeah. And it's, you know, that when people say, oh, she married, her, you know, she's marrying her father or mm -hmm. he's marrying his mother. What they're really talking about is this. It's that we tend to marry into the chaos that we've been raised around. Mm -hmm. And in your particular chaos, if you will, is it was apocalyptic. That's how you're describing it. And that, you know, just the word tells you everything you kind of need to know. That's unsafe. It's there's a uncertain future. So mm -hmm. it's very easy for Tamar to be an avoidant person because you don't really have to deal with it if the world is ending. Yeah. Or floor, it's, you just said it yourself, like you're in relationships and it's really hard to look into the future. Mm -hmm. um, that yeah. doesn't mean though that, you know, you can't, I feel like I want to believe that you can, if you really want yeah. certain milestones, like being in a committed relationship with someone you are worthy of, mm -hmm. I think you're perfectly capable. It's just about finding someone who's patient, but yeah. also who shares the same temperament as you. you guys are very different. I can already mm -hmm. tell just talking mm -hmm. to you for 20 minutes, you know, Tamar, like I said, you have more dopamine. The guy that you're supposed to be with, he needs to have also, you know, higher dopamine on that scale <laughs> floor. It's very clear the levels of serotonin running through your veins. Like you, what does that mean? Serotonin people that have ser more serotonin, they tend to be really like community based and they docile. go by the rules. Docile, like calm and relaxed, or no? Sometimes calm and relaxed. Um, people that that operate in a sense of serotonin, they tend to really. Um, respect the rules of the community. So if you were a kid saying stuff like, okay, you guys are all having sex, but the world is ending. <laughs> You're going back to the rules. Uh -huh. And, you know, people that are high in serotonin, they tend to be quite popular. They do make friends. They find comfort in authority. They find comfort in rules. They find comfort. There's a security to understanding what the rules are in place in your environment and kind of going along with those. And 
there's a lot of people that are high in serotonin, people that join the military, people that are religious, people that um, are might be community leaders, people who volunteer, they tend to be high in serotonin because there is a sense of community and a value in that. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that I feel like is reflective as you're talking. And so Mm -hmm. as you're speaking, I'm thinking to myself like, man, I hope whoever Floor meets is someone who also is very respectful of the boundaries that Floor is kind of operating in. That makes sense? Yeah, that's, it's all, it's very insightful. I, I've never thought of it that way. Let's take a, a few steps back here. I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about, Tamar, maybe you can speak to this, more about like the relationships that come out of this. At what age did you guys leave Children of God? It was like a slow process that started around age, well, the leader died around age 12. And then from about 14 to 16, we got put into public school. It was a very, people always say, well, what happened? What made your parents leave? It was kind of like a, a dissolving of the cults that made us be on our own. So kind of, we got put into high school. What, what you left at 14 to 16. Yeah. yeah. It's a transition period. Is there some sort of trauma bonding in this? Like, do you find other people that have experienced this? I would say that those, those years in high school, teenagers, we were attached to each other. We were like joined at the hip. And you and also, Floor. Yeah, me and Floor. Yeah. And yeah. also, um, we got into drinking and smoking marijuana. Like yeah, that to I, me was way more interesting than sex. Sex yeah. came much later. Yeah. And then there was also the separation of Floor and I in our early 20s. So through my whole 20s, I barely ever had a relationship or sex. I was just trying to figure out who I am without my twin. So I always tell people, like, I've already been through a divorce because we were so close and we just went separate, separate ways. We started to live separately, but trauma bonding. I, I tend to be drawn to people who at le- very least have an interesting story. Like it's really hard if you're just like boring, boring run of the mill. I need, I also need like a little bit of a struggle. I need to see some, like that you've overcome something. Oh wow. You're that like was, targeting trauma bonding. Yeah. Is that what, that's what, is that what you're that's asking? The, kind of, but now that you mentioned that, you know, you both live very international lives but you spoke English mm-hmm, in the yeah. compounds. Is it hard for you to be in relationships with people that are American who have never, maybe don't have a passport? I'd rather at least you've traveled, left the country, maybe at least, or at least have a curiosity to see the world. But I mean, I haven't traveled outside of the country for so long at this point. Um, Tamar, you just went to Sweden. Yeah, I've, been, um, I've done a lot more, a lot of traveling, but I would say I went through a phase where I was very attracted to the the nomadic man. Yeah, the, the, the a guy with an accent. But yeah. more recently, my relations have been with American, more stable. Yeah. That works for me now. Like the whole yeah. like, elusive guy who I, I'm just over that story with myself as far as like someone who I am always reaching for. I did that a long time. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Tell me, Tamar, about the work you're doing, even on yourself, um, as it pertains to you know, sex. You said you are currently receiving your certification as a sex intimacy coach. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me more about that. I guess it stemmed from just this obsession with relationships and sex and also the pain that I kept repeating over and over again. And the more I learn, the more I understand how sex and intimacy is tied into uh, what we go through as children and how there can be deep healings. Like for me, it's never just about sex. Sexual energy is the creative life force. It's Mm -hmm. the energy that makes babies. Um, And within sexual energy is our core desires. It's being attracted to the same pattern from our childhood. 
So yeah, the focus being sex and intimacy, but really a holistic approach of how can we live in a more embodied way and more in touch with our arousal, which again, isn't just about sex, it's about being alive. It's about having our sexual energy flowing Mm -hmm. and being creative in life and feeling good. So Mm -hmm. I've also done a lot of study with Tantra, which is more from an Eastern perspective, but using sexual energy as a way to awaken um, mm. And there's all kinds of practice. And I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like I'm super versed in all this, but I've done a lot of studying, but it's sexual energy as a tool for awakening and being more alive, really. That's really cool. I, like, <laughs> I can't wait to hear more when you're ready, but um, that's amazing. And obviously all of this, of course, stems from having participated without your will in the children of God. For sure. Yeah. And I feel like it's also been, like I said before, an initiation. Like the more I go into it, I'm like, I was made to be a sex and intimacy coach. The juice of life. Yeah. For me, it is where I feel super alive. And people want to talk about sex. Whereas oh, I, taught, yeah. I taught yoga for a long time. You want to talk about spiritual stuff or you want to talk about psychology, but sex, whether you're getting, having really good sex or whether you're not getting sex or you're don't want it it's something that people can talk or they are curious about it's very popular (laughs) (laughs) Um, no for me too you know as a as an author who wrote this book you know I, I do a fair amount of interviews and I have plenty of various things to talk about but there's always a a fascination with the sex part and I mean it's yeah. why I even reached out to you I was like wait what <laughs> like I read chapter nine I had to reread it like one more time I was like wait what's going on here I love that you're opening your book right now to figure out what I'm talking about I'm like what's chapter nine <laughs> it started talking about like flirty fishing and um just in general the relationship dynamics that you yeah. witnessed as kids yeah so I've always been kind of sex obsessed but like Floor said before it's also where I shut down so I remember even in relationship, there's, there's a, like, it's almost like not acknowledging that I'm a sexual being mm-hmm. in my twenties. There was this like, no sex. Like I thought sex was gross. It was, I mm-hmm. thought women were getting hurt because a young child, when I would see it, I was turned on, but I also thought that someone was getting hurt. Like there were yeah. so many confusing messages that came through. When people were having sex in front of you, like, are you in a crib or is this like <laughs> your seven-year-old coming back from hopscotch? Like we all, li- we live like eight to 12 people in a bedroom. We had these big rooms with bunk beds and there's adults always sleeping. So it wasn't again at this display, but at nighttime, a lot of times I would even stay up to like, I kind of thought it was fun. I would, at a young age, I was masturbating, <laughs> like very young. I wasn't. <laughs> I was. Okay. And... <laughs> seven years old well, so wait, eight to 12 people in one room sleeping yes and who are you seeing have sex like your mother or another person in the mm. compound it was often other people because um, we lived communally so there would be many families many adults and many children it was usually about 30 to 40 people but of those 30 to 40 about 75 percent children and then the adults so the sexual beliefs of father david as they were implemented in the group i always kind of, I guess, casually say it was like a bunch of swingers. Father David had a bunch of like some pretty weird and bizarre beliefs. He even believed that children should be like playing with each other, which I don't, I don't condone that. I don't think that's cool at all. But he kind of thought like sexual liberation needed to start at a young age because he had a traumatizing experience as a young boy. He was actually caught masturbating in church. I think he was as young as, I don't know how old he was. And then he had some other weird experience with his babysitter with like like sexually arouse him when he was three. Mm -hmm. Remember this, Tamar? Mm -hmm. And he would talk about it as if it was this beautiful thing. But now as adults looking back, we're like, oh my God, this guy 
basically it was he was a traumatized man who justified pedophilia to me what's weird is like you guys are raised in this like it's not like your parents brought you into this you're born into this and the way you're still able to kind of differentiate what's right and what's wrong for me it kind of is a testament to like that we do innately we're kind of born with a moral compass yeah Mm -hmm. I think so. People always ask me like, oh, did you know something was wrong? Like that's a very common question I get. And I always say in my gut, I knew. You can't go through that and just be like, do you remember Tamar? Like when we were little, like, especially we'd watch our siblings and this maternal instinct would kick in. And we were just like, no, something's wrong. This should not be happening to, you know, my, my blood basically. Like what? Oh, the discipline part. What kind of it's, discipline did you guys have? Um, yeah. Oh, they would spank I always, children I always call it cruel it was cruel and unusual punishment it was yeah. punishment that was humiliating, humiliating. it was uh, an example is we were we were always being um punished for being foolish we laughed a lot we giggled we were twins <laughs> so so we'd be put on silence restriction they they would right. talk for a few weeks and you'd have to wear a sign that says please don't talk to me i I've, I've been bad i'm on silence you're restriction. talking way too fast for something that is just like mind-blowing right now so your <laughs> discipline was silent restriction Silence, silence restriction. Silence yeah. restriction. I've never heard of these two words put together. Okay. And what people just didn't speak to you for a couple of days. We're allowed to talk for people like- couldn't really speak to us anyway. Like you have to understand it was this almost like this hierarchy. Like us kids, we found ways to like congregate and talk to each other. But like for the most part, we were supposed to be doing God's, we were saving the world. So we had this job to do. So from seven in the morning until seven at night, we were like kind of on this mission. And this mission was all revolved around Father David's teachings. So it's not like people were coming up to me like, hey, how was your day, Floor? Like, how's it going? Like, so saying don't talk to me <laughs> kind of just meant like, don't talk to me at all. Like, I can't talk back to you if you talk to me. So um, age nine, just, what does that mean? What does that mean to do in God's work? What does that look like? It was a lot of hands-on just, I mean, think about a big community home too. It was a lot of, cleaning it was a lot of um taking care of the older kids helping with the younger kids it was a lot of prayer time getting mm-hmm. together and there was singing i actually liked that part yeah we would get together and sing um a lot of praying a little bit of school there was a mandatory two-hour nap time where you had to be horizontal <laughs> that's when we would get into a lot of trouble because we were kids right two to, hours and we had to lay flat and take a nap we couldn't even lift a leg we would have time outside for about an hour so it was very structured as was the discipline. So um, people, I always say, you know, we we got disciplined, but they were always explaining it. They would take you in a room. It wasn't like you Bible verses and they would would give you a paddle. It was interesting because there was so much fear and they would also tell you like not to feel. So if you cry, stop crying now. So that's again, unraveling the trauma has been really cool because it's like I had to re-feel everything that happened. You had to kid. learn how to feel. Learn yeah. how to feel. Yeah. And then also realize how much I was feeling, but also being told not to feel. Yeah. And just the, the mechanism, the freeze response. Like your guys are the zero generation. Like your parents weren't born into this. No, they joined. No. They joined. Are there first, second generation kids in this? What do you like, mean? Like kids, our age kids born into, into it from kids who were born into it? Right. Yeah, there are. Because it started in the 68 and we were born in 81. So there was like 13 years of baby making and these kids are all older. um, And then after us, it kept going until around 94. Okay. So it hasn't hit like multi-generation. It's probably a maximum. No, and it it kind of disintegrated. I mean, again, there's no one to point to anymore. (laughs) I know. You also have some famous, I hate to say the word, but like alumni. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a great word. I love it. Yeah, the Phoenix <laughs> Brothers. Um, in fact, I got a lot of interview requests when the Joker came out because they were like, did his childhood affect did his Joaquin creativity? Phoenix's. Yeah, creativity. And, the, you know, they want me to speak on his behalf. And I'm like, I, I'm not going to speak on his behalf, but I'll tell you my experience and people can decide. But he's been they a little more young. vocal. They were so young. They so left young when they so got young. out. But I think it did imprint them. They were they would go on the speed um, on the streets and they would busk. So they they actually started out as street performers. They have like five kids, I think, in their family. And so we also we were born. In, I mean, we didn't perform a whole lot, but like it was a very my dad would say vaudeville, like very like we were always out performing and singing and dancing. Um, it was kind of, that was part of their sort of philosophy, I guess. Um, and then Rose McGowan was also in it, and then the lead guitarist of Fleetwood Mac left the group to join the Children of God. So yeah, there's been a few sort of like famous people. I mean, you just mentioned like two major artists who Mm -hmm. their emotions, and maybe this is, you know, what what comes first, you know, the actor or, or the art, you know, you just, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, Rose McGowan, these are people whose emotions are at the surface for everyone to see. And it's like, well, is it because they're artists and that's why, or is it because of children of God? Yeah, that's a tough question. That's hard to answer. Oh, you know, it's again, rhetorical. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's questions like people want to know, like, oh, did Rear Phoenix, he grew up in a cult and did his death have anything to do? And I'm like, you know what? I really don't, I, I, I I'm not going to say for sure. Sure. We're multi-dimensional and complex beings. Did his childhood have some part? Maybe. But you don't mm-hmm. think he's the only actor who's died from a drug overdose in Hollywood. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's not, yeah, you know, so I'm saying. It's like, wanna, how much of this is people, the artist yeah, and how much wanna, of this is... People want to put all the blame on this thing. People love, I, that's what I've, I've learned from being an author and publishing this book, is people love to have that scapegoat to be like, that's the problem. We found the answer. Therefore, we don't have to do any of the personal work, right? Right. Because God forbid you have to go and maybe search your own soul as an artist, which is a very difficult thing I've done. And I know I've seen people do, but so you look at it as a spectacle, like, oh, this artist, you know, he ruined himself. What's the reason? Oh my God, it's this cult. And then all of a sudden you're happier. I can breathe. Are you of faith today? That's a good question. I love that you look at each other. Like (laughs) that's my favorite part of this interview. (laughs) We've been asked these questions so many times. 19, 17 years old. And I always say like, there came a point, I don't know, I know Tamar, she'll talk freely about spirituality, but I heard a friend say, I'm an atheist. And I was just like, I just knew I wasn't an atheist. I just didn't know what I was. And I just tell people now, I don't like to talk too much about my own, I don't call it religious belief, but my spiritual belief. And Mm -hmm. I do believe in a higher power. I don't go around trying to like prescribe to anything, but I believe in something way more than just this physical plane. Um, and I always say, I, I live through miracles. I, I have, I'm not going to get into all the stories, but I've, I've lived through moments where I just felt like there's something watching. I'm getting chills right now, but there, there was something, whether it was guardian angels or whatever it was. And again, that's a math another. formula. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all predetermined. <laughs> and I would say my belief system, I'm definitely not religious, um, but I have a spiritual practice. And, but for me, it's also coming into the body is what's important so that so that it's something that's grounded it's not something that's Mm. out in the ether or out like in this Mm -hmm. philosophy i've been very wary of following people who have that cult leader so in the Mm. in the world that i because me and floor do live in different worlds 
but in the world that I am, there's everyone's looking for someone to follow. And mm. I've studied a lot of different, it's almost like I've been at the buffet taking all these different things and all of them are always leading you back into yourself, mm. right? Like the, the truth is here, the enlightenment, if you will, which is really becoming lighter <laughs> is inside it's not out there yeah. so but yeah I i'm believe, very physical you know. physically based i'm like okay what's what's this body have to teach me if this is what we have until we die yeah. let's yeah. pay attention to this <laughs> yeah i think we all want the comfort of knowing you know i mean almost religion is based on like what's going to happen after this but i think both tamar and i because of the intensity of our childhood and having to constantly think about death and the afterlife it was about more making peace on with what's happening right now and kind of like how can me and this physical body be happy and content, which is, you know, the basis of a lot of more Eastern practices, which is kind of made sense to us. The tissues hold the issues. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so our bodies hold on to our experiences. So, you know, it's never just a beautiful, they say the awakening or the healing process. It's not this beautiful. It is, but it's also this breaking down. Yeah. It's the pain that we, we carry. It's, you know, we all have some kind of trauma. Yeah. I always say this too. If you're a human on this earth, you're, we're here to heal, you know, like no one's, this is a cliche, but no one's getting out of this alive. I dare to say that no one has an easy life in this life. You know, no. we just have it magnified because we experienced something that was story. different. We have the story to tell, <laughs> but it all comes down to the human experience. And I believe that together more often. <laughs> yeah, this is really great. I believe that I, I've said this in previous episodes, but there are five ways that um, as a matchmaker, I measure compatibility. And I think most people should because so much of what dating is, especially in 2020, is mm -hmm. trying to measure the chemistry mm -hmm. when the reality is, is that your long-term compatibility, which you know, rarely does it rely on chemistry is so much more important. That's what's going to take you across certain finish lines. If you are hoping to meet milestones like marriage or kids mm -hmm. anyway. So one of those five compatibilities is spiritual. Mm. And I always try to tell people like, you know, because that's one of five, I'm not, and so it means is that what I mean is it's important, right? That doesn't mm -hmm. mean like I'm asking you what your religion is, right? I say to mm -hmm. someone, you know, what in your compatibility pillar of spirituality, what is important to you? And listen, for some people that are atheists, that's really important to them that like, you know, I'm atheist and I want to be with someone who's atheist. That's not always the case, by yeah. the way. For other people who have been raised in a religion, mm -hmm. um, which comes with its own dogma, they might say like, well, I'm, I'm Greek Orthodox Christian, so he should be Greek Orthodox Christian, something that's very common in my community. But then there are other people who are like, you know, they'll say stuff like, well, I just believe in a higher power. I, I don't want to date an atheist, but I'd like to date someone who's spiritual like me. And what I always try to explain to me is that spirituality is such a, a range of things. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just religion, although mm -hmm. some people could define it that way, but it's what Tamar said. And, and also you, Flora, like it's about, you know, is there a higher being? Is there something beyond me? But for me personally, mm -hmm. I think it's also about your soul's recognition of another soul. Mm -hmm. So like think about it, either that or also your values in the sense of spirituality. So like one of my girlfriends, she's vegan. Now, personally, I could never be vegan. But for her, when she talks about being vegan, I'm always taken aback by how that's like actually part of her spirituality. It's not so much her emotional or intellectual sense. It's, it's, you know, she really values the soul of other animals. And this is why mm -hmm. she is subscribed to a very restrictive lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so when I said before about like your soul recognizing another soul, it's the same thing. Like there have been instances where 
I think everyone has been on dates where, you know, you hit it right, you hit it off right away. You just can't mm-hmm. explain it. And then maybe it's mm-hmm. not a, a romantic relationship. Maybe it's, you know, one of your best friends, you know, you meet a woman at a conference and you just start talking and that's oh, yeah. it. Now she's your new best friend. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is a spirituality to that. Yes. Yeah. I think what you are describing this whole time is the other elements of spirituality, you know, like Mm -hmm. how you come to terms with the spirituality that you were given and how it's affected the rest of those compatibility pillars, you know, emotional, physical, Mm -hmm. uh, intellectual. Has this affected you financially? Are you talking about our childhood? Yeah. I don't know. I've always- I think right now COVID's affecting me financially. (laughs) (laughs) I've always just been a um, kind of resourceful. I'm, I'm, I'm more extroverted, more people person. So I've, I've just always found a way and um, worked hard <laughs> at whatever. That's but, awesome. Um, I like money. I used yeah. to not like money. I thought money was bad. You know, there, there was that imprint too. We didn't grow up with money. I tell the story of when I first handled money. Like it was this yeah, the- weird. Like it, we didn't understand money. We didn't grow up with We money. were basically excluded from the physical realm you know, in some ways. And that's why I think people like talking to us because it's almost like we, we used to say this when we were first coming out. It's like we were kind of like had this alien quality to us. <laughs> like, but yeah, money, I mean, books, movies, music, anything that like most people, it's like part of your cultural makeup, you know, but instead we were just like immersed in this like kind of like spiritual world. I mean, because when I was studying it, I, that's what I realized what it was. They were caught up in this spiritual fervor that was physical. They embodied it physically through sex. And us kids were sort of just like swept up in it as little innocents, you know? But yeah, spirituality, you know, I thought this recently for me, connection with someone, like if it's going to be serious, I need a spiritual connection. I need an intellectual connection. Those are my kind of two, two pieces of the puzzle that I need. And then the rest kind of works itself out. But I definitely need that, that intellectual, like we need to be able to have some really deep, interesting conversations. And then just having that like soulful, like it's something you can't describe. I think that spiritual connection is just, I don't know. You can't describe it. It's just there, you know? Right. I have so much more to say on the subject. Yeah. Just how my dating life or how my relationship has been affected by my upbringing. Well, how has it been affected? Oh, so I, I, example, like me and my boyfriend now, like the whole open relate, open relating is kind of a thing. Are you polyamorous? I don't like to put labels on it, but okay. I, I love that. Okay. <laughs> With my partners, it's always been a conversation. And I just, for me, I don't want dishonesty or cheating. So we talk about it. Uh, so right now we just got on a dating app site where we meet other couples. It's a whole, the whole swing. What scene. app are you using? <laughs> it's called. Oh, I don't know. Is that inappropriate to ask? No, I have no, no idea. <laughs> Come find me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's called it's called maybe one of my listeners is interested i don't know yeah. it's called field f-e-e-l-d it's couples either looking for they call them a unicorn like a girl or a man mm. to join or couples who are looking and we, we've just kind of started dating on that site and it feels really good because again i've never been with someone who's been completely the, the whole conversation around sleeping with other other people it's always been there i don't know if it's just the world that i'm in yeah <laughs> how can we do it in a respectful way, in a fun way? Mm -hmm. So one more thing is how do we relate with each other and with other people in a way that creates maximum fun and minimum trigger? Because relationships are going to bring up triggers, the places Mm -hmm. where we get activated reactions. Where do you find your triggers on this? Oh boy. Well, the abandonment issue. 
<laughs> you know? I know, but like how, what triggers these? Like what? Oh gosh. Um, well, <laughs> to be just explicit, having a threesome, we've had threesomes with a friend of mine and a fun, fun, fun. But then there's a part of me like, ah, my, you know. So do you feel like abandonment after the, after the threesome is over? No. Um, or if he's say, participating with a woman or man. Right. Or- yeah, no, I definitely have my abandonment issues that I'm working through, been working through. So when I feel like my partner is physically not there or emotionally or just distracted, it makes me feel my abandonment. So there's many things that can bring it up. And so again, have you ever you- participated in like sex with several men then to like, not with several men, with mainly other women. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but right now we're exploring with other couples, which there's a lot of fun dynamics that can be mm-hmm. experienced. And again, this is still right. very new, but, but that's something where I'm like, oh gosh, my boyfriend loves me for this. Cause I, again, don't have a traditional upbringing. Mm-hmm. So I'm very open, but I'm also very aware of where I can get activated or triggered or mm-hmm. my wounding can come up. He works with me very well. We are compatible in that way. Right. But yeah, it's again, research and development for me is <laughs> I'm researching. Well, that's, that's fantastic, Tamar. Like, I'm really happy to hear that you are participating in discovery, um, especially with a partner, because, you know, you can explore those triggers Mm -hmm. um, as they happen. Yeah, it's where the yeah. healing is. For me, I barely have time for sex with one person. <laughs> Lord's always like, joking. She's like, Tamar, I'm... you're doing group things. I'm just looking for one. <laughs> I just want one person. No, but it's funny. Even in this current, you know, it's, it's very new, but it started out basically us exploring. I, I think for me, again, it's more intellectual. I like to talk about it a lot. Like I've never had a threesome, but I can't mm-hmm. say I, I, I question monogamy. And if it's something that humans are meant to do, I just don't know. Um, when I'm single, I'm just, I, I, I'm celibate. Like I just, I'm okay with that, but, and I'm a very loyal person, but again, I don't know if this is, this is probably very much influenced by our upbringing, but I think we saw firsthand the, the sexual demise of a man, which was the leader, Father David. We, we saw was like he impotent. That, Did I read something he that was. he was suffering from yes. impotence? By the time the group was forming, he was actually impotent. But again, it was kind of all this, it was theory. And I think he, as a narcissist, he lived through these, the people. So he was, I think it maybe turned him on in some way to have everyone else kind of engage. He was a cuckold. This, like, sexual. Mm, cuckold, yes. Yeah. yeah. He was cuckolding 12,000 people. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And so for us, we were just power. exposed. We were exposed to yeah. sex and power, which is, I mean, the basis of so much just scholarly stuff. If you want to look right. at psychology and literature, I mean, we, again, we could have a part two on this and really go into it. But, but yeah, so I question it. You know, and I talk like with my guy I'm seeing right now, we just, we, we talk about it, you know, and, and yeah, and I'm kind of like, Hey, if in the future you feel like you want, you know, something happens and you're interested in someone else, like talk to me about it. But anyway, we're so new. We're still just trying to like bond together. I think you also have to remember that monogamy is tough as someone who's in a monogamous relationship. uh, It's tough. It's a, it's a tough thing. And it's tough because it's not, I want to have sex with someone. Or my husband wants to have sex with someone else's. It's truly not that. Um, I think what I've seen with other people is that what drives someone sometimes to cheat. By cheating, I mean like, you know, emotionally or physically doing something behind someone's back. Mm-hmm. Like without your partner knowing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think what it stems from is ego. Like yeah. I've said this before in past episodes, you know, we have this identity. And right now, you know, for me, for instance, my identity is, you know, business owner, wife, mom. 
Mm-hmm. And if you meet someone new who's not aware of these things, especially that you're a mom or a wife, it can be exhilarating. They get to get, mm-hmm. they get to know you the way your husband got to know you. Mm-hmm. And once you meet someone that's incredible and amazing and you marry them, that's it. You don't have those fun, exciting first month conversations again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is a rush of hormones that come with that. And I think that's where a lot of cheating stems from. Yeah. I don't know if monogamy is for everyone, but certainly there is a major plus side, I feel like, as someone who is in a monogamous relationship, to the kind of intimate bond that I have with my partner. Right. Yeah. Like the kind of intimacy, you know, that I have with George, that's my husband's name, is just something that I've never experienced with anyone. Like mm-hmm. I can truly be myself and tell him, yeah. you know, everything without yeah. judgment and vice versa. Ladies, we went, we covered a lot of topics today, but this was amazing, ladies. How can people find you? Um, so for me, um, I do have a book out. It's on Amazon. It's called Apocalypse Child, A Life in End Times. I have Instagram. Floor Edwards author is my Instagram and my Facebook. Twitter is Floor C Edwards. I also have a website, flooredwards.com. So I'm, I'm very findable. If you look me up, you'll see all the stuff I do. I've done a ton of interviews. And yeah, so that's how you find me and my book. Tamar? I'm, I'm not very findable. <laughs> Except <laughs> on, what was that website? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Except on certain data. I'm not very findable. I've done more from word of mouth. My work has been more word of mouth. But I am working on a website. And yeah. I do have Facebook and Instagram. But it's more my personal personal site. It's Tamar Therese. Yeah. Well, I'll include your details in the episode notes. Mm-hmm. So for all of our listeners who want to learn more about Floor and Tamar or also purchase Floor's book, please check out the episode notes. Um, I will tell you personally, I did read Apocalypse Child and I could not put it down. I read it in two days. Uh-huh absolutely loved it and it's actually the reason why Floor and Tamar are here today. Thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. I just want to say thank you for all of your DMs and Instagram screenshots. It makes me so happy to hear that I make your Wednesdays just a tiny bit better with Ask a Matchmaker. If you love what you heard, I want you to share this episode with a friend. Hell, share it with all of your friends. And of course, if you have not already, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate, review, and subscribe. If you have a dating or relationship question, visit askamatchmaker.com to submit a 60-second audio question. It quite literally only takes a minute. You can also follow me on Instagram at matchmakermaria for more dating and relationship tips. Until then, be lovable and more importantly, be likable. See you next week.